you know, just get out of the shot. Just yeah, leave. Yeah, that's where I'm going. <laughs> <sighs> I'm Ryan. And I'm Steve, and this is 60 Cycle Hum, the guitar buying, selling, trading, modding, fixing, breaking, reviewing, playing podcast. That's right, Steve. We're going to do things a little bit different this episode. Uh, we're going to start off with an ad, which isn't different, but then we're going to have a big old interview with the directors of Reverb.com's The Pedal Movie. Yeah. Uh, we already filmed that. It's a bunch of fun. So stay tuned for that. We're going to talk about a bunch of inside, behind the scenes sorts of things. But first, let's talk about our sponsors. Yeah, this week uh, the show is sponsored by Chase Bliss Audio. That's right, Steve. Dot com. <laughs> they make pedals more creative than you are with a digital brain and an analog heart. Mm-hmm. Except for the Dark World, which is a digital brain and a digital That's heart. That's right. If you're looking for a delay or a reverb or a different kind of delay or a looper or modulation, whatever, modulation. a fuzz, an overdrive, a preamp, a boost, an EQ. They have pedals that will blow your mind. A a boutique range. That's not the word I want. A plethora of controls. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Your finger and your toe tips. All your dip switches are on the outside. Oh, my gosh. All your regular switches are on the outside. Switches and knobs and presets and MIDI and expression and ramping and bouncing like it, you could spend a lifetime exploring a single Chase Bliss pedal. Yep. Or you could spend a lifetime exploring them all. That's what I'm going to try to do. <laughs> yep. This episode is also brought to you by Big Ear Pedals. That's right. Grant and Karen over at Big Ear Pedals make great. So they're 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 kind of like from a control perspective. They're like the antithesis, the antithesis of Chase Bliss. Of Chase Bliss. <laughs> but it's like, hey, you want a pedal that's got nine knobs and a billion different combinations of dip switches you go to chase bliss hey you want a pedal that sounds great and it's got three knobs you go to big ear yep there you go they're all great i have most of them uh no steve is a completionist he picks a brand and he tries to get all of the pedals like pokemon um but uh yeah go check them out uh my favorite right now from them is the albi the albi's great uh the little uh chosen for you multi-modulation a curated uh, curated that's the word i wanted curated Curated multi-effect yep is what we say go go check them out chaseblissaudio.com for chase bliss and bigearpedals.com for bigear pedals all right let's attack this ad yeah this pedal this pedal this ad was sent by doug christ from 37 effects it is a Gibson Les Paul Custom 1981. That's my birth year. Yeah. Should I get this? Yes. Forty five hundred dollar guitar because it's my birth. Do you year? have any? Do you have any desire to ever have like birth year products? Like, would you want I a nineteen eighty one Strat? I think if I had the opportunity, I'd love to have uh, a birth year Strat or a birth year any Fender guitar. What really. about a? Would you want a birth year? Um, I think my Jag is an eighty three. Would you want a birth year? Uh, DOD 250. Yeah, that'd be because that's probably like both, it's doable. Both doable. And... I tried to I tried to date my 250 once, and I think it might be an 82 or an 83 or something like that. Do you like, so it's close. Do you do like pizza or what? What? Oh, <laughs> p- date it. Yeah, pizza in a movie for sure. Yeah, yeah. I'm not surprised uh, there was only one date. <laughs> yeah, it didn't go anywhere. Uh, so yeah, no, no. I took my DOD 250 on a date, and things got serious, and we're married now. 
<laughs> and I, we actually have a lot of 250 babies around because yeah, of that. Uh, about this listing, too cool. Half refin, I guess you would call it. Stripped back and neck. Original silver burst in cavity headstock and some of the top. Original Tim Shaw pickups. I think that the original, I think that's the original case as well. Funky looking tuners. Not exactly sure what's going on there. Electronics and pots. Look original. An absolute must for your next kiss slash tool audition. So this person knows like the backstory, the rarity, the uh, mm. the legend, if you will, of the Silverburst Les Paul. They describe this as Art Deco. I don't think they know what Art Deco is. No, this isn't. I mean, I think someone could try to make the case that there's Art Deco elements here because Art Deco has typically a lot of straight lines and geometric shapes. But the fact that we're looking at neon paints and kind of distressed paints and stuff like that, this is not Art Deco. This is like closer to like Cubist or something like that. Some sort of uh, impressionistic kind of take on an Art Deco theme, maybe. Yeah, I- but mostly it looks like a really crazy way to refin a Les Paul, especially a Silver Burst Les Paul. Yeah. Like people who are Silver Burst lovers are probably just screaming right now looking at this guitar. I honestly, <laughs> I kind of like it weirdly. <laughs> like the Silver Burst mixing with like these triangles and, and geometric chunks of neon green and purple and then exposed bits of wood. There's something about this guitar that does it for me visually like i kind of like it is that weird yeah i have a lot of problems with this because i especially the triangle that's just below the bridge i think that's my favorite part um, it it looks like the like something about the way this paint is done makes me feel like it's just photoshopped it doesn't even look like it's actually on the guitar um it's just such a bizarre contrast between your classic kind of like smoky, dirty, well-aged silver burst yeah. that has been stripped away in geometric patterns and then filled back in in certain chunks with very bright paint that doesn't connect to a silver burst in any logical way. But then for some reason, this connects to my eye in a pleasing way so did you look at those tuners yeah they're the ones that have the little flip out thing so you can speed tune is that is that like a normal is that a thing we've seen those before on this show like i think it it is a normal uh thing that came on some gibsons for a while Hmm. like a little handle flips out of the end and so it's like a string winder built in so you can you can spin them really quick I don't. I don't ever remember seeing those. Flip, I yeah, Schaller Gold Flipout. So I guess Schaller made these. Yeah. Uh, these ones, the ones on this guitar, are Gibson branded. Um, I but, feel like yeah. the, the I, if yeah. there's anything to complain about this, like obviously most people are going to look at this guitar and be like, "Wow, they ruined it. It's yeah. hideous." Yeah. I'm a special case where I look at it and I'm like, I kind of like it. <laughs> uh, I think the price has got to be way too high, right? It feels way too high. Uh, there is a nine. I'm looking at eBay. it's forty five hundred dollars plus a hundred dollars shipping for a fairly significantly molested 
Les Paul from so, 1981. So, I mean, that's the problem is it is a silver burst, and silver bursts are, like, really desirable, but part of what makes them desirable, I would assume, is the silver burst. Right. Like, I don't know. I, I guess what I don't know <laughs> the is part, it, The part of this guitar that people would pay extra for has been mangled. Right, and, and, so, and so that's the thing I guess I don't, I don't really, and I'm going through, like... For what it's worth, and I'm this was a 30 bid item on eBay, so this is a real, like a really real sell. Somebody sold a 1981 Silverburst Les Paul custom body and neck, uh, so no hardware, no pickups, no nothing for $3,700. Yeah, and that I makes say, this price crazy because like, you could replace the, the hardware and the pickups for like, like 200. Maybe maybe four hundred if you're getting really specific. Well, I think if you want, I was going to say you have to get really specific because this is to get the value. You, know, you want yeah. those Tim Shaw's. You know, all all of the other parts of this are original. But even or if, at least even original if you era. go spend a grand, a thousand bucks on getting that guitar playable with with correct pickups, correct hardware, and everything like that, like you go all out. Like I'm not going to spare any expense. I'm going to get the hundred percent correct stuff and track it all down. That's still. Like it makes the price of this ridiculous, because this is is fully the finish is fully mangled. Like I look at this and I my my gut is going like you have to find someone who likes it, who likes what's going on here, and is searching for a Les Paul of this year, and then I'm still thinking like maximum is like twenty two hundred dollars. Yes. Okay. So I'm looking. So along those lines, I am looking this up. Uh, you can get a minty. Les Paul standard in wine red for from 1981. I'm looking at specific years, uh, 1981 for like 4K. Yeah, on on reverb. Though some of them people are listing higher. There's a lot in the four to six K range. This could be maybe a little more, five thousand dollars. So what this is is refin bait. This needs to be priced with a refin in mind. Right. You buy this, you take it to someone who does really good, appropriate refins of Les Paul's like I need you to redo the silver burst on this to get it back up to stock but still also make it look appropriately aged like I want it to have the mojo that is that is earned with its years so this decades you want to hear something dumb it's a 40 year old guitar I want it to look like a 40 year old guitar so it's like you have to set aside at least like like 500 bucks for a refin on this thing you want to hear something dumb I want to hear something really dumb the price on this guitar has gone up a hundred dollars since when you took what? these screenshots. Why? I don't know, man. Maybe there. Maybe uh. Maybe this is one of those situations where the the guys like the person selling it is like, yeah, honey, yeah, I got it listed. I'm trying to sell it really hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm getting a few offers. It'll sell eventually. And really, they just don't want to sell the guitar. So it's like a so, it's like a go away price. So this is kind of like a an issue. I'm looking again, just looking at reverb listings. Nobody has like a mangled, right? Les Paul from this era. Well, so. there's no way to like accurately figure out the price of something that's mangled. Like well, you have to go off your gut. If it was in perfect condition, then you, there's precedent for you to be like, well, here's what it should go no, for. But I mean, like there's not, you know, you would expect to see at least something that's like be, the, the closest thing was the one that I said on eBay where it was just the parts. It was just the body, right? Right. Body and neck, no hardware again, but it's easier to put a, a number on the value of those parts. Yeah. Where yeah. this is like, it's a conceptual sort of like value of like, 
oh, you could consider it a refin. Does the refin subtract the value if you sell it again? Right, like you have to right. t- you have to tell the next buyer like, hey, this isn't the original finish; it was refinished. Yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, like abstract concepts going on there when you consider the value of this guitar, and you have to consider the trouble that you have to go into mm-hmm, to bring mm-hmm. it up to stock. It's not just like oh, five hundred dollars for a refin, so this should be five hundred dollars less than a stock condition. No, you have to consider your trouble and the time that it takes to bring it back up to stock. In what, the if, price. what if you just, and I guess this is a Les Paul Custom and some of the other ones I was looking at were standards. Uh, so this is like, again, it's priced comparably to standards. I, I'm i just, I'm I'm hesitant to say that this price is bad. I don't think this price is good, uh, but I'm hesitant to like fully commit you to like, to this You have to really fall in love with this guitar to want to pay $4,500 for it. Because part of my thought, again, is like you look at other Les Pauls in other finishes and they are still priced more than this. So it's like, how, you know, you, I, I understand you like, you got to do that refinish calculation. But if you just like take this to somebody and you're like, just make this a, just make this an ebony, you know, just do it, just do the black finish on this. Okay. I, keep, now, I like now, that triangle. I keep looking at the triangle, the way it comes off that stop tail. I don't know why I like this so much. <laughs> okay, I'm going to buy it. Get Someone oh loan me $4,600 so I can buy this guitar. <laughs> I, I just, you know, that, that's that's all I'm that's all I'm saying. Like, I don't... I just dropped my pen. Show's over. Steve dropped his pen. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to say, like, oh, this is a great price. Like, this price is nonsense. But you think it's normal. And this price is nonsense to me, but you're also comparing this to, like, other silver bursts that are like five or six thousand dollars so yeah you're talking about or, or more yeah but like, people are paying people, that because they want the silver burst right so so but what i'm saying is if you want a silver burst right right there was a listing for a silver burst for like ten thousand dollars is that a real price i don't know sure uh but that is a price that people are trying to get. Now, I think I feel like for forty six hundred dollars, you just get one of those. Uh, you just get one of the new Adam Jones signatures. But then, you know, maybe that never gets to you because the Gibson delivery truck gets hijacked or whatever happened to those, and and all the Adam Jones Les Pauls get stolen. Okay. Uh, so I just maybe this is one of those guitars, and someone aged it and did weird things mm. to the paint to try to like. To make, to make launder it, like, it, put it back on the market, yeah, you know. Yeah. Like I said, I I I think this refinish, I you know, I hope this was something that was done in like 1988 to someone who was like, I got the silver wrist Les Paul, but I really want to look like I'm in like a like, like a, a new wave band, new wave, like I'm in a living color color band. <laughs> I don't know why that those designs make me think of living color, right? Um, and uh, so I'm gonna redo this and not you know something that was done later you know and, and what would help this listing is a story like like who did this modification to the finish right what band were they in what were they going for like the story makes all the difference like yeah. if you've got if you've got an instrument and you're listing it and it looks wonky and there's something obviously very different about it mm-hmm. you've got to tell the story in the listing if you want people to be invested in it like you have to get them interested and have an investment in the story behind the instrument if you want to be able to fetch money. Like if there's a cool story behind this, like, hey, I was in this band and, you know, we we opened for Duran Duran and we would tour around and we needed a more like new wave look 
it was 80s appropriate and so we mangled this up one night and you know this <laughs> the singer of the the go-go's was there and she lent me nail polish you know like stories like that you know like just make something up make something up make something up lies guys yeah yeah lies 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 maybe you were in the thompson twins that was the right band for that song right <laughs> i don't know i only know hold me now i'm pretty sure that's the thompson twins um I keep looking at it. I, I don't know why I'm looking at your screen. Yeah, my you screen, have your own screen, Steve. Keep your eyes over there. Yeah. I just... I said, okay, every, someone go buy it. $4,600 to go buy it. Even the back looks pretty mangled. It was definished on the back and the neck, too. Like, this isn't just the top. Like, yeah. it needs a full refin. Top to bottom. So, I yeah, I say, I say whatever the going price is for a... Close to normal condition silver burst. You just got to knock a grand off of it for this thing. I don't. I keep looking at the front of this thing. How do you even? How do you remove a finish in straight lines like that? I know it's it's wild. Uh, the case I think is original or at least original era. Yeah, it's one of those um, super geometric like rifle looking cases. Yeah, I just. Uh... Yikes. I, I, oh, that's what I was going to comment on is it says like, uh, you know, an absolute must for your next kiss slash tool audition. And I understand the association. But if you show up with this thing and you're like, look at me, I'm Paul. Is it Paul Stanley? Look yeah. at me, I'm Paul Stanley. I could see Kiss <laughs> rocking this. Ace Freely. Ace Freely play the last ball. Uh, uh, I could, maybe I'm not up on tool. I would have a tough time seeing this in a tool cover band. <laughs> <laughs> the neon green and pink uh well, or purple like kind of it, the whole thing is that. it's like you need a silver burst in order to be in a cover band for these artists you know it's like right, right. if you're going to be in a dick dale cover band you have to have a gold sparkle strat right yeah yeah and, yeah so, you just have to and uh and so it's like so if you go in with this and you're like oh yeah i got this silver burst les paul just so i could audition for this dual cover band they're going to be like what? <laughs> well, you're crazy. You're in the band. Yeah. We now, like we like how crazy you are. Get in here. <laughs> now, if it was like a a new way doing new wave covers of tool songs. Right. It's uh it's Latin, you know, but instead of it being played on bass, it's all played on like synthesizer. The way you just impersonated tool sounds like a banjo. <laughs> <laughs> I would have gone like Bum, 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 bum. I don't know. Um, Is that better? You no, guys tell that us. That was worse. That wasn't way even worse. the right melody. <laughs> um, do you got anything else to say about this? I don't. Let's move on to uh, the rest of the show yeah, here. Uh, we're going to, like Ryan said at the top, we're going to uh, smash in our interview with uh, the guys from the Pedal Movie. Dan and Michael. Yeah, go check it out at thepedalmovie.com. I super enjoyed this documentary. I, I I, I went watched into it twice. It. I went into it not actually, and I talk about this in an interview. I went in not expecting really a lot from it, and I think uh, it is way way better than I ever thought it would have been. Yeah, it's pretty so. good. It's really good production value, uh, really good kind of editing of the narrative and stuff like that. There's so much we get into it in the interview. There's don't there's, spoil the rest of the interview, Ryan. That's all they need to know. There's so much ground to cover, and I think they did a great job of making it concise yep so enjoy yeah all right we're joined by dan and michael the co-directors of the pedal movie is that the, the correct way to say it the co-directors absolutely yes. cool i cool. nailed it <laughs> um so i mean 
I don't know. Ryan and I have been bouncing off questions, and I know, uh, you know, your public, pub, I don't know if publicity is the right word, but your social media people are like, oh, submit questions. And we're just like, uh, let's just hang out. I mean, I think, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff to cover, but I, I guess, you know, let's just start at the beginning. Like, um, at, like where did this idea come from? Right. To be- sure. Uh, and for what it's worth, if you guys want to ask questions about like totally random stuff, like we could talk about pizza and, and, and imitate Blake a little bit or something like that. That's, that's cool too. We're, we're up for whatever we're up for, whatever, but that's Blake's territory. We're more yeah. burrito guys here. Yeah. yeah. So maybe okay. we'll, Hey, I, I am very happy to talk about burritos, but maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll, um, in fact, the burrito movie, maybe that's the next yes. project. Yes. Uh, but no, to answer no. your question. Um, so a, co- a couple years ago, almost three years ago now, Michael and I, and some other folks at Reverb, we were kind of in just talking a lot about doing something about the boot, like how the boutique pedal industry became a thing, because mm-hmm. it's like, if you read up on the history of pedals or look into it at all, it's like, there were basically like five or 10 pedal companies in like the eighties, maybe fewer. Yeah. And then 30 years later, I tried to figure it out. You cannot figure out how many pedal companies there are. It's thousands. Oh. No, thousands. it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, so the question was really, what are the factors and forces that kind of led to that rise and that expansion? The internet has something to do with it. You know, changing music taste has something to do with it. All these things. So that led us to kind of start um, doing some like oral history kind of interviews with pedal brands that we knew. Cause you know, Reverb, we have people coming through for different reasons, videos we're shooting, or we'll be at NAM. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started doing interviews with like Brian Wampler and, and uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and Joel from Chase Bliss and just sort of talking about their backgrounds and how they got into making pedals. And we were, as we started to gather this interview material, we thought like, this could be, this is, this is really great. It should be something bigger than a YouTube video. What if we made like an actual feature length documentary? Or at the time we were thinking about it, maybe it would be like a multi-part, um, you know, kind of series like a right like a, uh, like a, doc- a docu-series on netflix or something like that or hbo or whatever um and then as that kind of evolved we decided that since we really wanted to make the project or the film interesting to people who don't already have a vested interest in pedals like people who are just interested in music or music history that we really wanted to rewind and show the story from like front to back so mm-hmm. we kind of pivoted sort of halfway through or at some point in the, in the process of this to kind of have the first 30, 40 years. Um, and that's really where it came from. But the original catalyst was really just how fascinating it is that a, an industry can go from like zero to 60 so quickly and, and create yeah. this wonderful culture of all these people that you and I all know and, you know, are friends with and, and, and work with and, and whose pedals we play. So that that's exactly. really how it happened. I, I think that was one of the things that was hit in the doc. First of all, let me say, um, I remember you guys talking about this, I think around NAM 2020, maybe a little bit before that. And because of COVID, there was like a delay and a delay. And uh, I have to admit, I was a very snarky person, maybe not in public, uh, at least behind the scenes with this. I was like, is this the new seesaw? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the project that that never had, seems to get launched. Yeah, had a lot of steam and uh, and then, you know, it's just going to get delays. I was riveted by this dog. I did not expect that. Uh, I I put my kids to bed and I watched the entire thing straight through. And I was like, "Just go the frick to sleep." I'm watching the pedal movie. 
so I was I was really impressed. Yeah, it's a it's a really good view. Yeah, yeah. Um, I watched I watched through it twice. How many did you do, Steve? Oh, just one. I just only, once. I just absorbed it all on the first try. <laughs> um, but um, I forgot where I was going with that. I wanted to say that, and then I was going to segue into something. Whatever. Sorry, I ruined it. No, I, I ruined oh, your train of thought. I'll come back to it. Um, oh, slip, oh, slip yeah. Production the the thing you're talking about that it goes zero to sixty. Um, one of the things that was really cool uh, was ta- when you uh, have the interview with Fran from Frantone, and she talks about uh, you know getting a lot of early traction because she had a website. And looking at that, and then also thinking about how I think Analog Man, Mike Pereira has had the same website. Yeah. Like with no <laughs> updates since like 1997. Like his website is still a GeoCities website. It's right. the exact same thing as if you're familiar with uh, the Space Jam website, which yeah. I think they may have updated for the sequel, but for like oh. for many years. Okay. Maybe not, but it's the, it's the same kind of thing. It's like Space Jam and Analog Man yeah. still hanging yeah. out to that you know, bright man should come out with a space jam pedal to commemorate. No analog man should just come out with analog man too. And it's <laughs> being Mike, Mike Pereira. It's like a new up and right. coming pedal builder. So something I wanted to talk about is like the production side of this. Uh, you, you went all over the place filming all sorts of people. And I'm assuming you probably filmed dozens and dozens of hours of footage, like getting all this, um, like, is there anything that like any footage that you wish had made the cut? Like you can't put everything in there. You already have a two and a half hour long movie here. Like, obviously there's gotta be good stuff that didn't make it. Like what's like top of the list. Oh, an incredible amount. So yeah, we, we did shoot somewhere between, it was probably around like 125 to 150 hours. It's hard to tell because a lot of it's archival, and yeah. a lot of it's B-roll, and I wasn't exactly keeping track of everything once we got that high, but it's a lot. You know, a, a lot, lot of three or four-hour interviews. So. I know a lot of the people that are in it, and I've had conversations with them, and I know, like, you don't you don't film Robert Keeley and get two minutes of right. foot. Like, <laughs> you, you probably walked away with hours and stuff with these guys, oh, yeah. you know? Each one of them just sat there chatting and chatting for hours i'm sure and then you had to pick like the nuggets that would actually fit the narrative yeah totally i i I think one way to kind of explain this is like it it, you know through the course of the movie i don't think there's any spoilers here it's like it it follows a pretty chronological line up until like the last Mm -hmm. act and once you get into kind of like the modern era it's a bit more thematic it's more like you know zone defense you know it, it, it sort of it sort of bounces around a few different themes so i think where michael and i had the hardest decisions and also shout out to john gagan our, our main editor mm. who worked with us who's the third part of the the team here um and was you know is, is involved with this but <clears throat> excuse me um a lot of it was sort of like deciding we have all these great quotes and footage explaining this theme but maybe this theme is an impo- as important to telling the story we want to tell as this theme. So there's a lot of kind of things that have to get um, cut. The good news is that we have the Reverb YouTube channel. So there is there is plots of opportunity for some mm-hmm. of this stuff to uh, to get out there. So, for example, we released a video there a few weeks ago where we have 12 different companies telling their origin story. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those origin stories kind of are similar to each other. So within the course of the narrative of the film, it's not like necessary i think to tell every single one where it's sort of just 
you know, adding it's 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 really interesting to people who are fascinated by this stuff, which is why we were excited to get it out on YouTube. But it's maybe a little repetitious. So, um, so it's things like that. So one example, just off the top of my head, is like we talked a lot more in the interviews with some of the contemporary builders about like very like much more like in the circuit kind of stuff, mm. like like uh, design process and like part selection and, and that kind of thing, and that exists in the movie throughout like there are hints of that here and there but we had to kind of make the decision that like talking really deeply about some of the more technical stuff was probably not going to be super captivating to a general audience beyond the people who are already really really into it so it, it was it was it's like those kinds of things that i think were maybe the, the hardest to cut because we're we're we are in that population of people who are really into it and want to hear that stuff right yeah. totally so you and, could you could release like smaller little pieces and just be like, Oh, here, go listen to Zach Vex talk about, uh, you know, component selection <laughs> for 20 minutes. Yeah, from, exactly. From out of this hundreds of hours of footage that we have. that we filmed right. this. And I mean, we have, you know, if you look at like Nels Klein, you know, we released a thing that was just pieces of his interview that don't end up mm. in the movie because all of the artists, pretty much everybody we talked to that we had, uh, enough time with, which was, I'd say 99% of everyone in the movie had so much to say. Yeah. Like what's wonderful about this entire community, whether it's artists or whether it's builders or, or even like media is that they love talking about this. And it's almost rare when they get to, you know, if you're an artist, you're usually talking about your own thing or you're trying to dodge yeah. questions about who you're dating or something. Right. So <laughs> for them to be able to be like, I get to talk about gear. Like, yeah, just keep it rolling. Um, so there really is so much uh, from people like, Graham, I mean, Graham Coxon's interview, for instance, or Nels or Dweezels. I mean, they go so deep into all kinds of corners of their careers and how effects went in. But to, to go over, uh, you know, the entire 13 album by, by Blur, like song by song, wouldn't fit into like 45 minutes of the film, right? But it's really <laughs> good stuff. So there's yeah. all kinds of stuff like that that I think we're going to be trying to roll out, you know, over the summer and stuff. Oh, cool. Nice. Um, so uh, going along that, you know, there's, there are, I think a few clips, people you interview where it looks like they're actually being interviewed in the reverb space in Chicago. I, I can't tell for sure, you know, but yeah. it's very clean setups. Um, and then I know uh, some of them, um, at least my understanding is that some of the interviews are actually conducted remotely uh, due mm -hmm. to COVID. Um, who, who like had, uh, I don't know. It's out there, I guess, a little bit. Um, but did you guys feel like, obviously, COVID, I think, seemed like it extended the the time that it took to release this. Um, but overall, did did, you, did that almost seem like a like a positive? Like, did do you feel like it gave you more opportunities to interview, or was it just kind of like a frustrating thing of happenstance? So I definitely, I definitely wouldn't. Uh, yeah, I, I personally wouldn't wouldn't call anything about COVID or, or anything like a, a positive. Yeah. I will say that there was, I mean, that's not what you meant. I'm not trying to say that. <laughs> COVID, are you a big fan? <laughs> Guys, how do you feel about the devastation on the world population that this pandemic is causing? You, did, you, did you make a better movie because of it? <laughs> well, I, I, do see, I, I do see what you're talking about. And, and I think if, if there was one, one uh, sort of, silver lining that that it that time did allow us because we really even even at reverb we were kind of totally restructuring and rethinking you know how in content in video and in writing everything 
sort of sort of like what does the future look like? So we got to take a step back and really look at what we what we had up to that point, which was which was a fair amount, and then see where the holes were and and who we really ne needed to talk to, who was available, and who had the resources as well was another big thing. Yeah, and from there we we were able to kind of like slow down a little bit more than we, uh, maybe we wouldn't have if, if, it, if we, if that didn't happen, frankly. Um, and so I think because of that, you know, we really pared down like, okay, who are the next, who are the last steps? What are the last steps we need to take? What are we missing here? Um, and so for that reason and, and everybody understanding kind of like, okay, you know, the, uh, the filmmakers, we, we can't be in the same room anymore. We can't edit. I can't be over my editor's shoulder. So it, it became a totally different process from a post standpoint than I've ever worked in in 20, you know, 15, 20 years. So um, because of that, things did move a little bit slower, but there strangely was a little bit more creative breadth because we kind of stopped expecting what we were planning to expect in a way. And right. we, kind of let, we kind of let things move a little more, bit more organically and that kind of allowed us to be like a lot more discerning with um, just like with the creative choices on the film. So of course, not a, you know, I wouldn't do it o do it over that way. But uh, <laughs> but so you're not looking you know, forward to it. Too, is what you're saying? You don't want a sequel to COVID. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think I think kind of what Michael's saying. It also is like the hardest thing about this is like we could have kept filming interviews for another year and a half, two years, yeah. five. It could have been a life because it's one of those things where the more you zoom in, the more you learn about like, Oh, there's this guy who like invented this and like, mm -hmm. you know, and, and this, and this, and not even just the interviews we had scheduled, which we had to cancel of which there were a bunch that we were, you know, really bummed about. Um, but like also just, you know, the more you study something and the more you learn, the more you kind of hear about it. Um, so I think, I think the silver lining of like, okay, there's more of a line in the sand. We can't just keep going forever. And me saying, Michael, like, oh, what if we went and did this interview, this person, him saying, no, we really have to get back to editing. We can't <laughs> right. keep filming. Um, you know, he, he, it was. To be, and to be like real honest, like some of those last interviews, um, you know, if we were, it, 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 distribution, setting up distribution takes months. So, you know, we did have a rep film uh, a long time ago and that's just how the film industry works. But I would say that a month before we wrapped the edit, we were we still had one or two interviews coming in, and that's how much we were trying to. Oh, we really want this voice, like we really want this person in there. Oh, I can't shoot for two weeks. We need to deliver the film in four weeks. So wow. it was. It, it really was like everything really was down to the wire. We really were aware that people needed this movie. We were aware that people were uh, maybe upset that it had taken longer than they expected. Uh, than they thought it would. And we we're very, very conscious of that. Um, but we still wanted to make, make sure that it was something that was like very, very good, the best thing we could make and really representative of like this, the industry and not just like, all right, well, people are getting mad. Let's put it out. Right. Totally. So yeah. uh, could you guys throw out maybe a, a couple people that you really wanted to get that it just didn't work out because of the timing and, and yeah. or whatever? Totally. Ed, Ed O'Brien. Ed O'Brien <laughs> was the, was like the big artist that, and he was, he was into it. And like, we, we just couldn't quite get the logistics with COVID mm -hmm. worked out, but uh, that would have been really good. Especially because Radiohead's career, apart from being very defined by like evolution of Sonics, I think in a lot of ways, right. like, you know, the Ben sounds a lot different than King of Limbs or whatever. Um, 
you know, it's sort of like it, it covers this time span that's so like important to the boutique industry. So that would have been really good. And then very straightforward. I mean, we had this big trip to the East Coast planned that was going to be our last trip. That was in early May last year. So like right in like the wake of like, and we were like crossing our fingers, holding up hope, like, oh, COVID, how long can it last, right? Like, um, <laughs> and that trip was going to be uh, the big ones. We were going to spend a day with Electric Harmonics. If you notice in the film, we have Mike Matthews in there, but it's an archive interview from the NAM yeah. History Project. And shout outs to the NAM uh, folks, Dan at NAM, Dan NAM, um, who was Dan a Dan wonderful Dan. partner and, and did and helped us with that quite a bit. But we were planning on doing a much longer thing with him and getting to actually do some shots of the EHX factory and, and all mm -hmm. the history and stuff. And that same trip, we were also slated to film with uh, Eventide, which I was really looking forward to because Eventide is, I'm sure you guys might know, like they're they came to pedals from having this amazing background, making some of the most revolutionary studio gear in the history yeah. of recording studios. So that historic perspective on like the relationship between studio gear and effects, I think they really would have spoken to that quite well. And that was just another victim of um of COVID. And then a couple others, uh John Cusack was one we we had lined up that, that fell through unfortunately. And yeah. Uh, so yeah. John is, John is such like an invisible hand in exactly. the industry. Like people don't realize like how deep he is into everything. Like he's responsible for so much stuff that people aren't even aware of is is wild. Right. And a lot of a lot of those folks too, whether it's RG Keen, you know, getting him on camera something like that or or John Cusack, mm -hmm. you know, a lot. I think if, if you've seen the movie, you you realize that we're we're trying to make it's a love letter to the people, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and especially those stories that people don't know. Like, yeah, you if if you're really obsessed with pedals, you probably kind of know the Glenn Snoddy story, right? But right. do you know this? Do you know the these kind of more idiosyncratic things about where Roger Mayer came from, or where Fran Blanche came from, mm -hmm. or uh, George Tripps, etc.? And kind of having some of those. Um, especially the the sort of like very important people who maybe are not put on the same uh popular you know they're they're not on instagram like like uh jamie and julie are from earthquaker right mm -hmm. but um their importance is massive and so we wanted to we really wanted to try to get as many of those folks as we could in there i mean it's hard that it's like if someone asked me like hey ryan you want to make a documentary about the past the present of pedals like that's a humongous task like i can't even think about how to tackle that because there are so many facets there are so many personalities and companies and like like trimming it all down to be a single narrative is just such a huge challenge yeah. it's it's honestly just a monumental feat that you guys managed with this thank well, you thank you very much it definitely it definitely took some elbow grease and a lot of hours, but <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, I think, I think that was definitely, you know, Michael can, you know, sort of, uh, oh, he would certainly agree with this in our sort of collaborative partnership here. It's like he, I think my background is more of like a, like a writer and like history sort of snob, I guess you could say like my thinking was very, my impulses were very much like, we have to tell it, we have to include everybody. Like yeah, how can yeah. we not and, and Michael is much Here's more of a timeline and every right. single thing that happened. And like, exactly. The, and Michael is more of a filmmaker. And so his, his approach was very much like, no, we're telling a story. Like we're, we're right. like making a movie that has to have like a narrative to it. Um, so I think that anxiety of like, how can we have an interview, you know, that doesn't include this, you know, person or doesn't mention um, like, for example, we didn't have anybody on camera 
who talked about who was from DOD. And that's like, that was like a big one that I thought, you know, like, and there's a lot of examples like that. And it's, but I think our philosophy was like, at the end of the day, there are everybody in this part. I mean, part of the theme is that everybody in this industry, everybody who's interested in pedals has their favorites. Everybody Mm -hmm. like that's what boutique pedals are about. Like you love this company that nobody else has ever heard of. And it's like, you know, or whatever it is. So there's always going to be a level of sort of, uh, of, of like concern that we're not, but I think the approach of like trying to tell stories that are illustrative of like these broader themes and mm-hmm. that are like, you know, Mike Beagle from uh, Musitronics talked about how he got involved with the industry in the seventies is a really great story. And maybe he sort of a stand in for a lot of other people from that era, the same way that, um, you know, uh, you know, Wampler talking about going on forums, you know, Wampler wasn't the only guy going on forums and learning how to do schematics. But, you know, him telling about that experience makes it a more generalized thing for everything else. So that was, that was really the philosophy throughout was sort of like yeah. the examples that illustrate the whole without having to tell every, you know, we're not making an encyclopedia. Right, yeah. right. Did, did you guys feel like in, in doing the research, because this is something that I was thinking about uh, while watching it. Um, did you guys feel like while doing the research uh, or come across this idea or maybe like a overarching theme that, uh, pedals kind of are like fashion. They are in cycles. I, I kind of thought about this when you're talking about when with the MXR, which I, I never thought about MXR in the context of MXR one being mass produced American made when they started. Uh, but also part of that mass production is that they're in the, I don't know, you know, the Hammond 125 style or whatever enclosure, 1590, whatever style enclosure where it's compact, everything's the same. Um, in a time where everything was like, you know, the Big Muff Pie, the the Musictronics, like these weird shapes, boxes, you know, everyone has their own enclosure and then these guys come in. And recently, I know Ryan and I have talked about that. It kind of feels like the industry's doing that again. And I, it got me thinking, like, how many times has this happened where everybody's using the same box and then somebody goes, I don't like that box anymore. I'm going to do my own thing. And all now there's a bunch of different boxes and then in another twenty years, everyone will be using the same right, box right. again. Like did, did everyone's, you, everyone's going to like start putting all their pedals in the serotone clon box, and then oh, and, and then fifteen years, it'll all be back to single size enclosures. Like again. were there were there any other kind of cycles that that you guys picked up on in in the doing the research? I think there are, I think there are a lot of cycles. I think you could, even just if you kind of look at the film, there are still, we watched, you know, I watched it last night as a kind of sort of premiere again for, I think it like maybe the 85th time. And <laughs> I, even now I'm still seeing more kind of like micro cycles when you're, when you talk about um, even just like trends with, with ef- effects and music in certain eras becoming uh, more prevalent than others. But yeah, I, th- I think going back to the cycles of like the consumer, the sort of demand for things and how how things are created and how much uh, and how sort of mass produced or micro produced they are, you do kind of see that um, th- those sort of trends in popularity go. You know, if you if you look at like the mid 60s and you've got this very, very, very boutique almost type of thing where you have people kind of making one-offs and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And it kind of gets passed around. Those things turn into larger things that influence even larger things. 
And then you have like the largest things in the 80s or people kind of not wanting that anymore. By the 90s, it kind of starts over again. You kind of get like, I'm going to make a hundred of these or five of these and see if they sell. And, uh, you know, and then the cycle kind of starts over again. Um, so I think you definitely do see that. Uh, I mean, we could drill a lot deeper into that. That was a real general statement, but I yeah. think it's, yeah. And, and I, think it's so, I think it's so interesting now that there's, like you said a while ago, there's thousands of pedal companies. You couldn't, you couldn't figure out how many pedal companies there are. It's impossible. I tried. It's, <laughs> it's, it's almost like, Every single guitarist, every single musician can have a fully custom sound now. It's not like, oh, every every band in town is using a fuzz face. It's like you can have your own fuzz that no one else in town yeah. is it's, using fairly easily. It's yeah. wild. It's it's like if you it's it's almost like the only metaphor I can think of is like cooking, right? Because yeah. we might be doing the same recipe, but I'm in the UK and you're in California, you know, in the US, and it's like you know, we might both be cooking with asparagus, but like, this is a totally different, you know, it's, it's like, or whatever yeah. it is, it's even if it's the same basic ingredients, I have a delay pedal and an overdrive pedal and a reverb pedal. It's like going to be totally different. And I think, and I think, I mean, I think that's, that's obviously, <clears throat> I mean, you talk about cycles, that cycle of like the quest for customization, the quest for finding not just like a sound, but a, a, a an instrument, a tool set in, in the form of a pedal board, and then that in turn fueling more people to try to do the next thing like that. I mean, that's really what propels the industry nowadays. It's like that, you know, I think that's the big shift that we allude to in the, the towards the end of the movie. But it's, I mean, you guys know, this is very, very tangible. If you look at the culture, it's like the shift from pedals as the kind of supplement to the hobby, which is playing guitar versus mm-hmm. pedals being the hobby in themselves. And right. playing guitar is like a means yeah. to that end. And I don't, I don't say that as any sort of judgment. I think that, I think oh, that's totally. a great thing. I think it's both, they're both great. And if people want to play guitar without any pedals at all, like that's so, that's super cool too. I mean, my yeah, it's boring. Cool. Screw those guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, oh, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> no, it is like, like this whole, and this entire industry is, is propped up by the hobby musician, by people at home who want to mess around with different sounds and try different things. If we were waiting for, you know, the, the hot recording artists of the day to determine what was hot or not in the pedal industry, there'd be three pedals that were popular right now. There'd be like two companies. Like there's, there's just not enough famous musicians to keep this kind of scene going. It's so oriented around a, a hobby level culture of people who now have, the internet to discuss things with each mm-hmm. other right. and to show like, Oh, here's a picture of my pedal board. And people like get on their phone. Like they're staring at it. Like, what is that? Oh, what is that? What is that <laughs> and, thing? And, and it's totally like social environment right. that I don't think we saw in previous generations, previous decades of guitar equipment. It's, it's a really wild time. Totally. And I think that exact same day, I mean, obviously a lot of this has to do with the internet and oh, yeah. that, you know, fuels, cultural trends but it's true of listening to music like you know people since you don't have to i mean you can listen to any music anytime that creates a situation where music tastes are a lot more diffused mm-hmm. and this you know uh tosin abasi might be the most famous guitarist in this particular subgenre, uh you know of, of uh, you know what is it what is that even progressive metal or you know yeah. But a lot, of, and and there's millions of people who are obsessed with that genre and think he's the greatest guitar. But there's people right over there who are also interested in guitar music who've never heard of him potentially mm-hmm. because right. the 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 tastes and that's that's true of not just music. It's true of like everything in 
culture right now, I think in a lot of ways. And I think with pedals, like you said, it creates this pocket where people can get so invested in this hobby and it kind of becomes this huge obsession and it keeps on fueling where, like I was saying before, I can have my favorite pedal company that maybe you've never heard of because they only make 200 pedals a year and I buy right. two of them. Something I wanted to ask about is uh, there's a section in, in the, in the movie uh, about like negative comments online and what builders have to put up with, with you know, like uh, the peanut gallery on forums and stuff like that. Uh, have you guys checked online to see comments on the movie yet? <laughs> uh, yes. Like, the temperature of the internet, see what people are saying. Oh, God, <laughs> I will say the thing that most people are upset about right now is that there have been some issues. I don't know when this is coming out, so hopefully it'll be resolved but there have been some issues with international access to the movie. Mm. And there's a few where we don't have uh, clearance yet because we have to mm. submit for like ratings and translation board. things that's film board stuff. That's like kind of a hassle. So that's like New Zealand and Brazil, I believe, and a couple others. And then some of them is just this weird glitch thing where like on Google play, it's not showing the right accessible for a lot of different countries. Anyway, this is more in the weeds, but I guess I wanted to say if anybody's experienced that we're, we're working on it and we're very sorry, but um, it should be resolved shortly. Other than that, I mean, I won't name any particular names of different forums or stuff, but <laughs> it, it, what, what has been very satisfying is that there has been a fair amount of like people leaving their comment that's like, I'm not going to watch this. It's just going to be an infomercial for reverb. Like, right, right. And then, and then and at least in one or two instances, we've seen people leave a comment like that and then come back and be like, all right, well, I watched it and I was wrong. It was, it's actually really good. Um, <laughs> We saw a bunch of those on on Reddit, and Ryan was like, "No, it's it's good." And it's like, and the, and that's the thing is, and it's a, it's the same thing even with like the JHS YouTube. Like a lot of people are like JHS's YouTube is just a big infomercial for JHS. So it's like he he almost. Ne I feel like he never yeah. talked about himself on there. And <laughs> yeah, I think Re I think Reverb does more demos for JHS pedals than JHS. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, but that's yeah, I, I've seen that a few times, and it's like. I think Reverb's involvement with the pedal movie was like from a Reverb presents, and then it was just like by you know ten minutes into the thing, I was like, "This is just a movie. Like this is right. It's just a documentary. If anything, it's probably more of a promotional piece for Nam than anything. But yeah. <laughs> because there's you know yeah, you want to go see all these people in person, go to yeah. Nam. <laughs> yeah, because well, I mean, like in terms of the the archival footage oh, that, yeah, that, yeah, sure. that's used throughout. Yeah. I, mean, I would if, I would have thought there's a museum up for this stuff. If if it's a promotional movie, it's a promotional movie for the entire pedal industry. Yeah. And since one of the main points we're trying to make is that a lot of people who are in this industry, it's a thing they're involved with from a place of passion. They're they're you know supporting their families and creating jobs in places like Akron, Ohio. And and you know, if 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 we're if we're being promotional for that industry, like great, you know. Mm -hmm. Um that was really the impulse. But also point out that, you know. Michael and I started working on this, you know, two and a half, almost three years ago. And our motivation then was very much just what, you know, we think this is really cool. It's a story we want to tell. And we're in a position where we can tell it because we know so many of these people involved. We're already filming a lot of content about pedals for reverb anyway. That can kind of be this um, launch pad into a lot of these other sorts of things. So we felt like we were kind of singularly positioned to do it. Um, and if, you know, reverb, if more pedals get bought and sold on reverb as a, as a result, like great, but like nobody's counting that. Yeah. You know, and there's nobody like uh, sort of scrutinizing those numbers and like thinking about like, oh, can we 
do this exact same thing for ukuleles next year. Like, it's not, it's not really <laughs> How about a snare drum movie? Can we do a snare drum movie? <laughs> the best thing that ever happened at Nam was when they moved all of the drum oh into one room so you could avoid it. And it made it so that you could just sneak around the drum section and not have to deal with the, right. the snare. <laughs> the guy testing cymbals. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Oh, yeah. Testing those cymbals. <laughs> you really hear the difference on the NAM floor of the uh yeah, totally. <laughs> that, that, one thing, uh, that we talked about is uh for us, you know, with there not being NAM uh this year for well there may or may not be summer NAM at this point. It sounds like they're trying to make it happen. But with no winter NAM, like this felt like uh there's a little bit of like that NAM experience, but at least for us, like yeah, not- we got to see all our friends that we didn't get to see this year, <laughs> you know. Right. Totally. Yeah. And it, I, I think also it's important to, to remember, like uh, going back to whether you're talking about, you know, opinions on forums or diversity, equity, inclusion in the industry, whatever it is, like Dan and I set out v- from the very beginning to make a film where we were not inserting ourselves. We weren't, we're not, it's not narrated. We, right. we, didn't, we didn't write anything for anybody. This was purely responses and and themes that kept popping up over and over and over and over again uh and when and when we would see something that we saw happening over and over and over again like people wanting to talk about cloning or wanting to talk about forums i mean every person was more than happy to talk about things like the change that's occurred in the last 15 years in forums um so really you know we're just our job in this entire thing was just to express what the the folks who are making your stuff and playing that stuff um think yeah it was neat to see like a like andy in there and also like a newer youtubers like emily and stuff like that and that's that's you know that's my business i do youtube demos and stuff like that it was neat to see that included as part of the narrative because just i mean so much of this scene is the new internet media, like it's forums, it's the demos, it's, you know, Instagram, it's all this stuff. And it's, it's incredible to me from my perspective to look at this industry and be like, there's, there's so much going on here. And it's so like homebrewed that someone like me who objectively sucks at guitars can make, (laughs) can make my living like doing demo videos of pedals and guitars and stuff like that. It's just, a really wild time. Like if you had told me 15 years ago that any of this was possible, I'd be like guitar pedals, like making a living, yeah. like just showing them off. Like, what are you talking about? Like, and, and what I, what I really wonder about, it's like, is, is what other boutique industries or cultures that are really similar yeah. to this exist that we don't know about because we're not in that, that, uh, that group, like, like my wife's really into like, like letter pressing and like high quality, like paper goods and that kind of thing. And like, you know, I, I know a little bit about that, I guess, just from sitting here next to her on Instagram, but it's like, maybe you can make a movie about boutique, like letter pressing and like, you know, stationary and that kind of stuff, because there's probably a similar story where it wasn't available before the internet. And now there's this culture of people only doing limited batches of it. And I mean, alcohol is a very similar story that came up in a lot of the interviews. Um, like craft breweries, breweries and craft, stuff like that. Craft brew, I mean, craft brew is probably the most like because you know everybody kind of knows that story. Like, um, I believe like I don't don't quote me on this, but I read somewhere that like 
in the 70s or 80s there were like less than 10 american beer manufacturers or something like that like like not yeah, including all right yeah. And then by like now there's, you know, it's similar to pedals. There's thousands yeah. out there. Um, I think there's yeah. 10 breweries within three miles of my house. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, I mean, but at the same time, like the pedal industry is, is actually completely different because if you, if you think about it, you're not going to, you're not, it doesn't, it doesn't expand as far with the beer industry. Like you're not going to go right. flip a beer. Uh, on the internet, well, I guess maybe for, retail for beer. I right. actually what's it like? Plenty of the elder that like so if you go to Beer Advocate, there's like there's some beers like that are there actually are flipped like that because but there's probably a limited. Right. I would imagine a shelf life on that. Actually, yeah. there are some now that I think about it. Maybe for it is sure. like Dark Lord. Yeah, but you can't um, you yeah. can't buy a beer, try it, and be like, oh, right. not for me, <laughs> and then go resell it. You know, and that's I think that's such a huge part of pedals is that like. You you see something on the internet like I like the way it looks. I like the description. I'm listening to sound samples. I want to try it. You get it. You try it for a while, and you go, eh, I don't know. I want to try a different thing, and then you sell it. And there's this just right. this huge culture of like trying it, reselling it, buying something else, reselling it, and everyone trying to find the sound that's in their head or a sound that they've never even considered before. Yeah, it's it's a really wild vibrant community that yeah it's hard to imagine a similar scene you know the the only one that i can think of is there's like outdoor goods and like uh and like bicycling mm. and like some like sort of sporty stuff like that like people who are into like high-end bicycle stuff they you know they'll swap their pedals and their brakes and all that kind of stuff and there's a huge resale market for that but it's 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 you're right it's not quite the same and the difference is that they're looking for something tangible. Like they're looking for the pedal that feels the best or the brake that has the best sort of response. Whereas you could buy 500 different overdrives. They all do the exact same thing. And you're not going to know which is the one you like the best till you hear it. And it just clicks, you know? Yeah, totally. Did you guys get a lot of footage of Josh Scott talking about bicycles? <laughs> yeah. I mean, isn't it funny? He does love, he does love bicycles. He loves both types of pedaling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anything with pedals. Pedal yeah. boat. He's into pedal boats too. Like any flowers, they've got pedals. You know, he's all about it. flowers. <laughs> it's just the word pedal. Anything that resembles that word, he's into it. <laughs> Was there any point in uh, in making this? Probably a lot of points, uh, but anything particular that comes to mind where you're you're making it and um, you did a section, and then all of a sudden it dawns on you like. I don't own this effect and I need to go buy this right now. Uh, Quite a few. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I have my gear since I'm living abroad right now has been very limited. So that's been kind of a blessing in disguise because otherwise I could, I would, you know, would probably right. have bought a lot more. Um, but I think, I, th I, I think like, wah was something that i'm eager to get back into because like the wah story is so cool and i haven't had a wah pedal since i was like a teenager and mm -hmm. it's like um because it's not really part of the music that i play but like now i'm like oh man wah it's like it's it really is like such an awesome original kind of thing so that that definitely is a temptation and then honestly i'm sure you guys can relate to this like you want to buy pedals from people you're friends with and like oh, you totally. want to support their businesses. I don't have a fuzz Rocious fuzz and I really need to fix that because I love the fuzz Rocious vibe and Ryan's a yeah. good friend. And like, um, 
you know, repeat that a hundred times over. So I think, I think that's where I feel the most, uh, um, like I have several EQD pedals. That's, that's good. I have a JHS pedal too. Like that's fine. But you know, there's a, there's a few others like that. I get myself in trouble because, you know, these companies, they send me stuff to demo and then I end up with, with like all these pedals over here. I have, I have two shelves full of fuzz pedals over there and I can only use one or two at a time when I go and play gigs and stuff like that. But I look through them like, Oh, I'm not really using this. I could sell it. Oh, but Ryan sent that to me. It feels like the the person that I know gave this to me. Oh, this one's from Robert Keeley. I talked to, you know, his guy over there and he, he sent this to me personally. Like it feels like this weird personal conne- connection with so many of these pedals. And it's like, Oh, I've got this, this pedal that Joel sent me to demo. Joel sent me this one. I could sell it and buy another one, but it wouldn't be the one that Joel sent mm-hmm. me. Right. And like this, this personality connection where you feel like, even if you've never talked to them, you can feel like, you know, all these builders, just from them being on the internet, just from interactions of them being on the internet. And it's, it, it's, it's really crazy. Like the yeah. whole scene is just crazy. Yeah. yeah. One of the great benefits of, you know, being the video director at Reverb for the last six years is being able to try like every pedal yeah. you could imagine, right? Similarly, it's, it's one of the great benefits of, of, of doing what we do. Um, but when, while working on the film, the biggest outlier, like I've played an original tone, but I've, I've touched the tone bender 1.5 in Macari's, right? Yeah. Like the one that was made for Jeff Beck. So like, I, I have a very blessed life within the pedal, you know, verse, as far as I'm concerned, I've been able to do that. However, one of my favorite people in the entire film and one of our favorite interviews was Fran Blanche, who really mm-hmm. stopped making pedals uh, kind of before, well, well before I, I got to reverb, right? So her entire catalog of effects is is now sitting at like the t- the sort of top of my like I've never seen or heard one in person. Mm-hmm. So now it's all the Frantone stuff that I'm like, ooh, what does this do? So that's right. right. That's where I'm at. <laughs> like you've got your own unicorn now. Like you want to yeah. start using vintage guitars. Like mm-hmm. when I started thinking about vintage guitars, I want to buy. It's like that's never gonna happen. Like I could spring for an expensive Chase Bliss pedal here and there, right? But- you know. Like even like, you know, the most expensive pedal that's out there, like the, you know, go find yourself an original clone. It's expensive. People are trying to sell them for three and four grand now. But if you really, really, really wanted it, you could still get it, which is crazy. Like there's people who definitely spend more money on less significant things for their hobby. You know, like I'd never spend thousands of dollars on a pedal but if there's someone out there who has that amount of discretionary income and they're like oh i want to try it they could go buy one totally yeah they could buy it and then if they don't like it or they figure like oh yes you know it's silly to have this they can sell it again for the same amount of money or similar it's it's really it's like it's like imagine buying like a 200 dollar or i don't know even like a however much dollar the like a massive extremely rare rare like wagyu cut of brisket that's like 25 you know what i mean right right. if you if you decide that like you're not going to kill or if you cook it wrong you've just wasted a lot of money and you're not going to be able to get rid of it (laughs) (laughs) like you know 
like you there are vintage guitars that have been played by famous people that like most people will never be able to afford like you can never afford you know a guitar that Steve or Yvonne played you can never afford like a Dumble or something like that but you can still go get like the most expensive pedal there is I mean I don't you know everyone has different finances but it's like a couple grand in the in the grand scheme of things is still accessible when you think about it in a certain direction. And I think where it gets really sticky is a lot of people who are probably buying that stuff, think about it as a, as an investment and think about it as an asset. So there, and when, when people start buying this stuff, be it guitars or pedals or whatever other sort of thing, um, not because they, like, I think when you're saying, Oh, I'm going to buy it and I can resell it and make my money back if it's not for me, like that's very cool. And, you know, I think reverb has enabled that or expanded that to a certain degree. So that's good. But, um, I think when people are solely doing it because they're trying to speculate on the market, that's where things get really sticky and where I think there's a lot of anxiety within the industry right now is sort of like people, I mean, that's, that's not limited to pedals. I mean, that's, that's happening in every collector market the past couple of years, um, is just sort of like these bubbles and speculation, Uh uh, going kind of rampant. I remember when that happened with the, with the, the star Wars prequels. Yeah. Remember when everyone was buying Jar Jar Binks toys. Cause they're like, Oh, this is going to blow up the, before, the, before the movie even came out, there were lines around toys or, or us or beanie, beanie babies. Beanie that, like, babies. Yeah. So there might be a, a certain element to that, to the pedal industry. Like, you know, we, you know, reverb with chase bliss launched the, uh, the bliss factory. Yeah. And, you know, it's pissed a lot of people off because like everyone, like so many people bought it just to scalp it. Yeah. And like, there's like an unhealthy side to that, you know, like totally trying to get two grand for these things or whatever, when the builder and the original retailer intended them to be. Yeah. Much than that. And where, where I think we get frustrated or not frustrated, but kind of disappointed. And uh, you know, that, that seems like ages ago now, but it's like, is that people who it's very let's just say the, the the pedal industry and internet culture is as susceptible to conspiracy theories oh, sure. as any other pocket of the internet and the idea that like you know somehow the people involved were like engineering this because you know because reverb can get fees every time it sells right, it's right. like it's like you're giving us way too much credit on being like savvy enough to figure out a scheme like that because like apart from being evil that's just very complicated the people who were involved with making that pedal like the or the, the marketing and everything around it. It's like, you know, the ZBEX folks, the Chase Plus folks, handful yeah. of people at Reverb, including us. And it's like every single person involved with those projects, their motivation was let's make a really cool pedal that ties into this movie and like can get yeah. people excited and get the word out a little bit because we're excited about this. And because, uh, you know, Joel and, and Zach like have this history and, and Joel had been thinking about how he was going to make that pedal for like years and like finally had the right opportunity to do it. The last thing on anybody's mind is like, is like resale value. You know, it's just right, like, right. It's also just goofy to think because I, I just started running the math of that in my head. I don't know why. Well, I know why. I know that's why. what I do. That's what you do. Um, but it, it's like a, it's a really goofy to think about it as like a conspiracy thing because it's like basically in order to commit to that conspiracy, you have to assume that like somebody in this process was like, you know, it would be a really good idea. Let's have a limited edition pedal where we're going to pull 5% from a line of, you know, a hundred pedals for $400. So we're going to make $8,000 and then people will flip that for a thousand dollars. So we'll make another like, and you add it up and like, 
that's a lot of work for a company to make forty thousand yeah. dollars. <laughs> totally, a hundred percent. Yeah, and with the you know, and and I think the problem is is that a lot of these people think about it and go like forty thousand dollars. That's like what I make in a year, and it's like yeah, but when you're running like a company, forty thousand dollars is like right. That's what there's we, three we, there's three companies involved with this pedal, and it is right. It has to get split across dozens yeah. of employees. Like it's not a lot of money. Yeah, and, and we've talked about like that's like three companies going to Nam. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, you, Reverb has like the huge, like a huge uh, booth at Nam. I don't even want to know how much that costs. I know like the smallest booth is like five thousand, eight thousand dollars. I don't even want to know what like a full floor. Sp- yeah, like, totally. So it's totally. like these yeah. these numbers seem staggering to an individual, but when you start thinking about it big, it's like I think it, that's it, it's not a conspiracy worth conspiring yeah. about. I think that's part of the fun, though. It's part of the culture is people online taking all this stuff way too seriously, totally. and that's that's their fun. Like it's yeah. the same thing yeah. as people who watch movie trailers and dissect them and like, oh, can you believe that that there's this scene and what are they alluding to is going to happen in this movie? It's a dumb movie. Yeah, <laughs> right. or like, yeah, these are totally. just holes. Like, I know that your entire being is wrapped up in trying to find a conspiracy here and trying to find like an angle where you think some manufacturer is trying to stick it to you <laughs> with, yeah. with something that you didn't even know existed a week before. But I think that's it's a source of entertainment, and and that's something so unique about this scene is that the existence of these products is a source of entertainment for so many people. Just hundred percent, it's thinking about yeah. them all day, like thinking about collecting them, thinking about what they mean. Like it's it's, it's, it's like it's like um, that's such a good point, and I wish I had thought about it in these terms before because like you're right, it's 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 almost like like I follow uh, NHL hockey. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's like the one sport I'm interested in. Although we've my wife and I have been trying to get into F1 racing since we watched that Netflix documentary <laughs> series about F1, which is really good, by the way, if you're into. Um, but the thing is, like, I actually read more like hockey statistics and like tweets and like articles than I actually watch games at this point, because mm-hmm. like a lot of the hobby is like the news and like the right. and, like the thinking about it and like, oh, who's going to be trade? It's like fantasy, like all that kind of stuff it's kind of similar with pedals. It's like, there are certainly people out there who are more interested in like reading up on what the new releases and like what happens at NAM and watching a demo channel or listening to a podcast. They might spend more time doing that than they actually do playing with pedals. And that's totally cool. Like it's, it's yeah. like you're saying, like it's part of the thrill and part of the fun. Like I love, I love the whole pocket of the internet where people, anytime a new pedal comes out, they like look at it and they, they find like a gut shot and they're like, it's it's a ripoff that they're they're charging this much oh money because I could because I could build that it's it's fifteen dollars worth of parts <laughs> like that whole like it's fun to make fun of those people but it's like they're having a lot of fun like that yeah. is their entertainment like the the them picking apart every single product and thinking about how much it would cost them to build it while ignoring all the other facets of business. <laughs> yeah, one of my favorite lines in the movie is Dweezil Zappa saying. You know, there's these people that are chained to the wall in their mother's basement, eating dog food, typing away as to why the Tube Screamer is the greatest pedal ever made or whatever. <laughs> I want to say, Michael, I'm really impressed that you were actually able to quote that line verbatim because I, I did. I knew it, too, but you had it exactly right. Well, I, I edited. I did. I did, edit, I did edit six trailers and a film for two years. So I. <laughs> I saw that clip a lot. <laughs> we actually we actually saw the tweet from the tattoo parlor where uh, they 
That's I, we know that that's your tramp stamp yeah. now. <laughs> oh my gosh! Do we have anything? This is starting to run long. Do we have anything else that we want to cover? Yeah, we do. We mentioned this at the beginning. What is uh, what's your guys' go to burritos? Oh yeah, burrito talk. Ooh man, I um okay. I, I got a good one. There's a really good restaurant in Chicago called Arazu which is actually not very far from where Michael lives now that I think about it. And Urazi is a Costa Rican restaurant and they mm. have an amazing vegetarian burrito that has guacamole and mushrooms and, and all this kinds of stuff. But I'm not a vegetarian. And the move is if you get the vegetarian burrito and have them add chicken to it or whatever else you like, it's like the most super burrito you can possibly imagine. Mm. Cause it has all the filling of the normal size vegetarian burrito plus everything else so i guess my favorite burrito is vegetarian burrito with meat added to it <laughs> I, I, I i never thought about that i yeah it's I, like a cheat code secret menu kind of thing i need to do that I, now. I make a really good like vegetable stew stew and my secret is chicken broth and meatballs <laughs> yes <laughs> exactly exactly so i start off with a vegetable stew and then i put meat in it and that makes it really good <laughs> What about, you? what about you, Michael? What's your go-to burrito? I'm going to shout out one of my favorite restaurants in Chicago, which is called Lonesome Rose. It's up in Palmer Square. And they have a burrito that is a fire chicken burrito. And it is almost like having like a hot like like a Nashville hot chicken or something inside of a burrito. But wow. it's like it's like exploding but it's not dry it's like it's got all kinds of wonderful stuff in it and it is i go there often well i did but i will be going when it when everything is open and outside again but we we used to just remake stuff off of the menu me and my wife just Mm -hmm. to taste it uh when they were closed for a while but that's the place nice what about you steve california California. Yeah. <laughs> Have you guys ever had a California burrito? Like from California? I, I mean, I've been to California. California. I've been to yeah. California a lot and I've had a lot of burritos. So I'm assuming there's a style of burrito local to San Diego called the California burrito. I, I think you can get them at the right places. They're starting, in to, LA. Sp- they're starting to spread out, but it's, it's a carne asada burrito, but they stuff it full of French fries too. Oh, it's, it's I just, have not had that. It is a perfect drunk food. I'll say yeah, that. The, the, <laughs> the legend is that there was a taco shop across the street from McDonald's uh, in like one of the surf communities. And so surfers would come in, get like a small fry or whatever from McDonald's, then walk across the street and just tell like the taco shop, like, can you throw these fries inside of a carne asada burrito? And that's like, yeah, there I don't go. know how much of that's true but there actually is like a five minute ten minute long documentary on the california it was from like five years ago (laughs) i'm i'm definitely into it but i was always the kid who would put french fries in my like burger at mcdonald's oh yeah it's the same concept yeah just throw it in the milkshake yeah yeah yeah. i mean you it's like strange sometimes to go and get like a falafel and not see fries on the menu. Mm-hmm. They, fries have been integrated into everything. Yeah. Waffles, <laughs> waffle fries, waffles and fries. Who doesn't like potatoes? Like it's exactly. Like food, I guess we're know? talking about fries now, which is oh. 
the natural segue uh what's your what's your go-to chain hamburger oh my gosh we're not gonna do food for an hour come on <laughs> i just it just got me thinking about josh scott there's a pedal <laughs> connection here and people in and out versus five guys thing oh my gosh <laughs> well, you, you can't get in and out in in the midwest so it has to be five guys <laughs> i don't i don't want to go down this road i'll never stop um, so yeah. uh, clearly a documentary could be made about anything. Uh, do you think you guys will, will do more of these? Do you think you'll do another, uh, guitar gear oriented documentary, like a guitar documentary, an amp documentary, an accessory documentary? Like you do like a, oh, cap- a capo movie. A capo movie? Yeah. I think, that- I think the French fry and thing movie is the one. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think we've been making a lot of mini, uh, you know, probably made like, hundreds of little mini documentaries in guitar land and synth land, et cetera, that are all up on the reverb YouTube channel. I don't think we have any uh, plans to stop doing little historical deep dives into all kinds of facets of the music gear and music industry. As far as a feature length thing, I'm just happy that Dan and I put out this movie yesterday uh, and, and people are enjoying it. So I think I'm going to take a bit to, think about the next feature film, but it's not out of the question. Nothing is out of the question. Yeah. Well, um, I, on the other hand, have envisioned it as a multi-phase cinematic universe. So this is the first one where eventually half of the pedals in the universe will be destroyed so that the other half can survive. And, um, but that's many years from now. So what I'm hearing is that little one liner at the 30 minute and 43 second mark in the pedal movie is really the crux of the entire yes uh, exactly storyline and pe- uh, people should go back and watch it and look for clues as to the yeah. character development development that they're going to yeah. see across the, the, the honestly i uh, obviously we're kidding but now that i think about it it really was a missed opportunity not to have a marvel style like bumper at the very end of the credits mm-hmm. where it was just some like very strange like pedal performance or something um well yes. direct director's I- cut right <laughs> I think you just have to steal. I forget which Avengers movie it was, but I think you just have to steal the shawarma scene from the end. But it's just a bunch of pedal builders sitting around <laughs> yeah. eating, you know, whatever pedal builders eat these days. They're just shooting the boys. whatever pedal builders and, eat. And, these and days. also, I you know, all along those lines, I do really want funny. to. See- Is this where we end this interview, yeah, Steve? Is um, that the way you want to close this out? <laughs> Um, I just want to say congrats to you guys. Yeah. Uh, it se- sounds like the launch is going really well. And again, I, I super enjoyed this. I'm pushing this on uh, in a lot of places where people are like, oh, I don't really know about this. I'm like, no, just go go check it out because uh, this is uh, definitely wor- worth uh, watching. And I'm thepedalmovie.com, is, that's the gateway, right? Yep, and it's available on uh, iTunes, Google Play, and Vudu. Um, yeah. And like we said, keep an eye on the reverb YouTube channel because there'll be, there already are a bunch of spinoff features and there will be more, uh, coming there. So some, yeah. yeah. And if you have, if you already have watched the movie, we just wanted to thank you so much for yes. renting and purchasing thank you, it. And thank we you very much. Really ho- just thank you for helping this film get up into the iTunes charts. We're really excited about that. And we hope all kinds of people get to keep seeing this and digging into the pedal world. Nice. All right, guys, thanks for giving us your time. And uh, we'll talk to you again when you finish up the Capo movie. (laughs) Perfect. Thanks, guys. There we go. Whoa, that was a lot of fun, right, Steve? Yeah. 
Uh, Loved hanging out with those guys. This is the uh, the part of the show where we thank our new Patreon supporters. If you want to support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash 60 cycle humcast uh where for as little as one dollar you can uh help us out uh so thanks this week to uh steven Brady who is joining us at the uh five dollar level and uh at the one dollar level joining us uh lumpy dump truck and jesse perkins so again if you want to support the show if every single person who watched this show i can't wait to see lumpy dump truck in the end roll credits as we play songs uh, that's if, a fantastic if, name if everyone who watches this just signed up at the one dollar level that would that's all we're asking for guys every single person sign up at the one dollar uh, level that's uh twelve dollars a year that's like two times through the three times through the starbucks drive through that's like half of a trip to in and out come on super rich steve how much money do you actually spend when you go to the starbucks drive through uh, i'll take one of everything you know what you know what no two of everything oh my gosh <laughs> um so this week's song uh we're gonna we're gonna get out of here this week's song was sent by casey aru aru aruho that's what i'm gonna go with he says hey guys huge fan of the show my wife and i did a synthwave cover of Chris Isaac's Wicked Game a few years ago. Hope you guys enjoy it. Check out our band Out of Sight, Out of Mind on Spotify. A gear used is a Korg Volca Keys, Volca FM, Volca Sample, and a Tascam Porta Studio for tape loops. This sounds fun. I can't wait to hear this. So get this plugged in. Looks like the connection's bad.
That was a really fun treatment of that song. Yeah. Like yeah. I could, I could without question hear that popping up in like a movie or a TV show or something like that. Like something like as use like transition music and you're like, Oh, why do I know that? And then you like realize, Oh, that's a wicked game. Yeah, like exactly. Really, really clean. It's a very like treatment uh, of that. cinematic. Yeah, totally. Styling. Love it. Very Just cool. love it. Well, thanks for sending it in. Yeah. Bye everyone. Stay grounded. <laughs>